Yeah, guys, um, so starting today till we get this done, uh, we'll be looking at Zechariah 8, because Zechariah 8 is almost like an inheritance chapter or an inheritance passage that is being given to us as a church so that we can plot the next 12 to 15 months in terms of what God wants us to do. And so it's like a field that has been uh, given to you. And uh, in the field are either nuggets of gold or um, oil. And so getting the field doesn't uh, call for much celebration. You can celebrate it, but it doesn't do you much good because the oil has to be drilled or the gold has to be mined. So uh, that's the thing with most um, directions or prophetic words that God gives. It's good to get excited about it because... It's God speaking, and if you heard Maya reading again and again in the chapter, you hear the whole idea of, and this is what the Lord Almighty says. So we can get excited about that. Um, but on the other hand, it has to be mined and uh, drilled. And so that's what we'll be doing over the next eight weeks. One of the first things I want to say about this is, just imagine, eh? what, if, what if what I'm saying is absolutely true? Then here's what it means. It means that the Lord of heaven and earth has a plan or a strategy or a blueprint for a group of nobodies who he wants to work with. I just want us to be aware of that. That this is the creator of the universe. The cosmos exists because he allows it to exist. It consists in him. And he decides that there are a group of people who meet and the group of people will keep growing, keep um, changing in its um, composition. But this is a group of people I want to work with and therefore this is what I have for them over the next 12 to 15 months. So um, one of the things we need to understand as soon as we uh, come to a place where we believe that it is God who has plans and he who is speaking is everything that is said must be clearly heard, humbly received, joyfully believed and diligently worked out. Diligently outworked. Everything that God says, it doesn't matter. It's not like this applies only to what we're doing right now. But whenever God speaks or whenever you sense God directing something specifically towards you, these are four steps that have to go into play. One, it must be clearly heard. And um, the quality of your hearing determines the output of the seed. It must be clearly heard. It, just, it, it does require that I speak it clearly, or whoever is speaking it, speak it clearly. But once it's spoken clearly, it must be clearly heard. And Jesus said this. Again and again, hey, Jacob, make sure that you hear correctly, because if you don't hear correctly, you either produce 30 or 60, but you can actually produce 100-fold. And once you clearly hear it, you must humbly receive it, because many of the things God says are impossible or go against the grain of what I'm presently doing or will require a change in plan. And there is a tendency in the heart of man to resist that which is impossible or that which goes against the grain of present thinking. So humbly receive once it's humbly received, then I go into this place called joyfully believing it. Joyfully believing it. Not grudgingly, not off and on. Not like a turtle that pulls its head back every so often. 
joyfully believe it. And then joyfully believing it is good, but after belief comes the actual outworking that must be done diligently. Diligent carries in it the sense of consistency and long haul. It's long obedience in the same direction. And the great thing about any inheritance that God gives is that God usually gives it to a people. And so once he gives it to a people, let's say God gives you land, gives a people land. He gave Israel land. But whenever he gives people a land, then what happens is each tribe and then each family gets allocated a portion. This is so cool about God. Eh? And these are eternal principles. So let's assume that what we are saying right now is absolutely true, that this is what God has for us as a people. And I don't say as Acts 29, because Acts 29 may be 20 people today. What if it's 60 people tomorrow? So that's why I'm calling it a people. Anyone who comes under this roof and decides, hmm, nice roof. So um, whenever God gives people a promise or a blueprint, know that uh, there's a tendency in the church to think, well, then the leaders and the pastor will take care of it. And yeah, we'll have to attend and clap and sing every so often. No, when God gives people something, it trickles down to the tribe and to the family so that every family benefits. And the strange thing is you can benefit even without being a part of it. You cannot buy into it. But the strange thing is because God is giving it to everybody, whether you buy into it or not, you get it. The problem arises when you try planting seed that you get regardless of whether you like it or not, the more you're into it, the more the seed produces. But the seed will be given to everybody. Let's assume you're all my children. My God. <laughs> Let's assume you're all my children. And so it's Christmas and I come with gifts for everybody. And so everybody here gets a gift. But how you use the gift depends on your connection with the giver. But will everyone get a gift? Yes. Will everyone use it the way they need to use it? No. Nope. Why? Because that depends on coming and asking the one who made the gifts for the instructions to play with the gifts. I won't say this every um, time we continue down with Zechariah 8, which is why I'm spending as much time as I'm doing right now. The other thing is, guys, as we work with this, we've got to ask two questions. One, what is it that I presently have in my hand. And what is it that I'm reaching out for? What is it that I'm reaching out for? Keep asking this question throughout your life. That Father, because God looks at two things. Eh? With one hand, he says, hey, Jacob, I've already given you stuff to do. So stop looking, at, looking for something new. Stop looking for what's the next exciting mountain that you need to climb. Stop looking for what's the next prophetic word you need to receive. Look at what you have in your hand and deal with that faithfully. While with the other hand, keep reaching out for the things that I have for you. And this is how Jesus lived. First 30 years of his life, man. He was faithful at home as a small-time businessman taking care of his family. While he's reaching out towards his messianic role, which is soon coming. 
And how you're faithful with what you have in your hand determines the capacity and the ability to manage what God is going to give you. What you ha- how you deal with what you presently have in your hand determines the ability and the capacity to manage what lies ahead. Because as Christians, especially if you go to a charismatic church where the prophetic is often at work, everybody wants the next new prophetic word that God has for you. But God will give you a prophetic word, but you will not be able to manage it or rule over it with the capacity that you need unless you've been faithful with what you've had. What do you have in your hand? A little bit of oil. Well, then be faithful with it. Make cookies and bring it and give it to Jacob and then see what happens. I'm looking at some of you who haven't done that for a while, eh? So, so, what do you have in your hand? Deal with that faithfully and it creates the capacity and the ability to rule over what God has for us in the future. And then the last point I want to make before we go into Zechariah 8 is this is just crazy, man. God. I don't know. I throw out these pens every week and they still make it back into this bag. God is giving this inheritance to a people first and then to individuals second. That's the way he works. He didn't call out Moses and say, hey Moses, you and your family, I really want to give a whole lot of land to you. He didn't call out Jacob and say, hey Jacob, you and Joseph and Benjamin, let's allot a whole lot of stuff to you. God always works with the people. He's been looking for a people right from the beginning of time. Every time he starts something, he may start it with one man, but he's always been looking for a people. And at the end of the day, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it ends with a people. Christ came not to draw individual believers to himself. He came so that he could have a body made up of individual believers. If your body is whole, then the members in your body are whole. If your member is paining, it means, I mean, what I'm trying to say is when the entire body receives what is from God, then there is no part that is left out. We have a tendency because we have a highly individualized society to have a few brilliant individuals who run the entire thing. And that is not the God way. The God way is always, can the entire body get what I want? Then you know what happens? Even if an individual is resistant, he gets swallowed up by the body. Does that mean that you lose your identity or your individuality? No, it becomes secondary. You don't lose it, but it becomes secondary. This is the cool thing about God. It is not that you lose your individuality or identity, but your individuality and identity is now secondary to the character and the personality and the identity and the individuality of just one, the Christ. So it's not that it disappears, it just becomes secondary. Any questions on that before we go on to Zechariah 8? Any questions, guys? Anything you want to add? Hey, Evan, did you really turn the heat on or turn it off? Pardon? 
No, it can go up to 73. Just make sure you turn it off because then they find out. <laughs> oh, shucks. Said Derek, yeah. yeah. Any questions on what was just said? No? Okay, let's go to Zechariah 8, verse 1 and 2. Can someone read it out? Zechariah 8, 1 and 2. Zechariah 8, 1 and 2. Okay. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. This is God speaking. Eh? Oprah got really put off because she once went to a church where the pastor was preaching on jealousy and uh, on, a, on jealous God. And she got totally cheesed off with God because she heard the preacher talking about a jealous God. So that's why she turned her back on the God of the Bible. This is authentic. Eh? I'm not making it up. Uh, but today we'll be talking about a jealous God again. And thank God Oprah is not here. So Zechariah 8, 1, 2. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. Have you noticed? Again, he starts with the corporate. He doesn't say I am very jealous over an individual. He says I'm very jealous about Zion. What is Zion? Zion is not Israel. Zion is the resting place of God. Where does God rest now? He rests in the midst of a people. We are Zion. Whenever we talk about Zion in the New Testament, one must not think, ah, shucks, Zionist, Israel. Nope. If you go to Hebrews 12, 22 to 25, it says there, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the place of his saints. Zion is now the resting place of God. And where does God say he rests? If you go to Psalm 32, I think it's Psalm 32. It says there that I have found you as a resting place, as in a people as a resting place. So he says, I'm really jealous over Zion. And then as if that isn't enough, he takes it a step further. And he says, I'm really burning with jealousy, burning with jealousy. You know, the idea of jealous, how do you define jealous? Jealous is what uh, happens when the one you love goes after another. Jealous is what happens when you find that someone is competing for the one you love. Jealous is a very human word that most humans experience at some point or the other. Jealous is either when the one you love goes chasing after someone else or jealous is when there are others who are competing for the one you love. That's what jealous means. And God is saying, I feel jealous over you. I'm actually burning with jealousy. I remember I used to really like this girl. And uh, this was ages ago, eh? And, um, and then my best friend liked her too. And uh, when he and I were alone, he would tell me how much he liked her. And man, I really wanted to put him out of his misery, but I couldn't find a baseball bat. So I would just sympathize. But... Even at that age, I was hardly 18, I started young. There was a sense of, my God, the jealousy you feel when someone else is competing for the person you love. And that's exactly what God is saying here. I mean, look at the scriptures with jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 5. Exodus 20, verse 5. Exodus 20, verse 5. 
It says, you shall not bow down to them, on, them in worship, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Look at um, Exodus 34, 14. Exodus 34, 14. It says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous. I mean, he calls himself Jealous. I mean, which God has the audacity to name himself Jealous? And yet that's what he names himself. As we find out why, it'll blow your mind, man. It's a great name for a God to have. But no other God would dare call themselves Jealous. That's what he says here. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Guys, we're going through the book of Zechariah. Why are we going through these verses? Because as we look at these verses, we'll realize the kind of people he expects us to be over the next 12 to 15 months, and the kind of God he wants to be over the next 12 to 15 months. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4.23. Deuteronomy 4.23. Deuteronomy 4.23. Deuteronomy 4.23 It says there, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in any form or anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. So you have a consuming fire and a jealous God. This is the whole idea of, listen, I'm burning with jealousy. So here's a fascinating thing, guys. It's fascinating that God chooses to enter into an intimate relationship with me to the point that he now feels sadness and anger when I give to someone or something the affections that belong to him. Just think of that again. It's fascinating that this invisible God of the universe has entered into an intimate relationship with me to the point where he actually feels sadness and anger when I give to anything or anybody the affections that belong to him. What kind of God is this? He feels, he feels angry when I give to something or someone the affections that belong to him. He feels sad. Hey, this whole idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, we don't know what it means. We think if Emily misses a line in the song or the Holy Spirit will run away because he was grieved by, our, by missing our two lines in the song, that's not grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit is when the affections that belong to God are taken by me and given to something or somebody else. This God has become so intimately in love with me that it actually saddens the Lord of heaven and earth, the king of the universe, the creator of cosmos, now actually feels sad or angry when the affections that belong to him are given by me to something else or somebody else. That is grieving. And so you might think, well, he shouldn't feel angry. You know what he did with that anger? He poured it on his own son, Jesus, so that you may be spared his anger.
odd God, man. Once you become aware of it, the more you become aware of it, the more aware you will be of your affections going places where it shouldn't go. You think that wives don't notice when husbands' heads are on a swivel? I've watched, man. It is so grieving to a woman when she's walking with her husband and his eyes are darting and looking at other women. You should see how women feel when they find that their husbands are actually flirting while they're standing there with another woman. The grief it causes, Mark, the grief it causes is tremendous. It just rips a woman's heart out. Because standing there, it happens. I just want us to understand what jealousy is really like, guys. I cannot understand this kind of love that the Father has for me. It's odd. On one hand, he's the Father. On the other hand, Christ looks at us as his bride because he's the bridegroom. Any questions? You know, divine jealousy is actually holy because God expects the same fidelity and character that he has in his covenant people. Stranger, just think of that line. Divine jealousy. Divine jealousy. This is not Don John. This is divine jealousy. Divine jealousy is holy. Divine jealousy is holy because God expects the same fidelity and character he has in his covenant people. Think of that, man. Hey, his fidelity is so absolute, he'll never be faithless. He will never be faithless. There is not a moment in my life where God will not be faithful. He will only be faithful. He'll never be faithless. His character will not change. It's immutable. It won't change. It doesn't matter how I treat him. It doesn't matter how saddened he is. It doesn't matter how uh, I provoke him to jealousy. The one thing that doesn't change is his fidelity and his character towards me. And does not a God who dwells amongst the covenant people have the right to demand of the people the same fidelity and character that he has? Does not a husband demand that of his wife? If you being as evil as you are can demand that of your spouse, what about an absolutely holy God who lives in unapproachable light? How can he expect less? You see, when Paul says, now approach the throne of God, for he has sh shared our frailties and he understands our condition. He is not saying that God has lowered the bar. He's saying God sympathizes with your weakness, but he cannot expect anything less because holiness, if it is lessened, does not stay as holiness anymore. You don't need the cross. You don't need bloodshed. You don't need any of that if holiness can be lessened. All God has to do is reduce his holiness by a little. But if he reduces his holiness by a little, we become acceptable and he, ends, he stops being God. That is why every other God in every other religion can always dumb down their holiness and people become acceptable through a ritual. Ritual. 
Not this God, because he stopped being God. Divine jealousy is holy. Divine jealousy is also loving. Divine jealousy is also loving. But guess what? It's an intolerant love. It is an intolerant love. What do I mean by intolerant love? <laughs> this, it is intolerant in that it fights. It resists and fights when the oneness that was forged at Golgotha is squandered or wasted on someone else or something else. It's, it, divine jealousy is loving. Divine jealousy would not exist if God wasn't loving. If he wasn't loving, there was no need. I mean, what do you care if someone else's spouse is um, running after somebody else? You'll feel bad. You have your Christian sensitivities now. You'll probably pray, but it doesn't affect your life because you're not in love with that spouse. But what when it's your spouse? We just can't understand it because Paul said it's a mystery that Christ loves the body, his bride, like a man loves his wife. He said it's a mystery. We don't understand the depth of it. But divine jealousy is loving, but it's an intolerant love because it fights for the oneness that was forged at Golgotha between the spirit of God and my spirit that have become one according to Romans six nineteen. He fights for it. It's an intolerant love. It's an intolerant love. God doesn't sit by idle as you wander. There is not a single story in the New Testament that Jesus spoke that portrayed the Father's love where the Father was sitting idle. It is always a Father who starts running. So whether it be stone idols, whether it be self that becomes an idol, whether it's the cares and the rewards of the world, hey, guess what? This God of yours, and this is rarely spoken of, demands exclusive faithfulness. He demands it. He has a right to demand it because he's done everything in this relationship. He demands exclusive faithfulness. He demands, he, he is the one who stands at the altar and says, through sickness, through joy, through, you didn't have to make an oath. You just had to receive his love. He is the one at the altar. In this marriage, only one swore his love. The other just received it. We'll read a passage from Ezekiel. It's so beautiful. Where you see God as one who marries you. He's the one who's doing all the work. The strange thing is, guys, discipline is actually an outworking of God's jealous love. Discipline is an outworking of God's divine jealousy. If he wasn't jealous, he would not discipline. My dad disciplined me because 
it was important to him that I do well in life. Hebrews 12 talks about it. Discipline is an outworking of divine jealousy. Because he knows that your affections, if they lure you away, will come back to knife your soul. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul puts it this way. I've pledged you as a virgin to one husband, but I am afraid that just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, you are being deceived and her affections are being drawn elsewhere. And what happened to Eve when her affections drew her elsewhere? She was knifed in her soul and we still suffer the gash. The reason discipline kicks in is because he's so jealously in love with me. My God, Jacob, if I don't step in now, because of my divine jealousy over you, then the very affections that are seducing you away will come and knife your soul. And that will perhaps be more unbearable. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. That could just about begin to define the force of his love. Somehow David got it, eh? He would sit amongst his sheep and with his harp and start playing and singing songs that talked about how much God cared. Jealousy is also spelled zeal. Jealousy is also spelled as zeal, Z-E-A-L. That's another word that well represents jealousy. I'm excited about what God has for us, guys. I like God becoming bigger than he presently is because just when you think you can begin to wrap your arms around his wrist he turns up bigger and then you realize ah shucks jealousy is spelled zeal and god is zealous about his splendor and expects us to be too guys the word glory which comes from a hebrew word called kabod basically means his weight his magnificent magnificence his splendor his power his uh, excellence all this is taken together i put in a word called kabod which is what we now say called glory and so god is zealous about his glory as in this is an immutable unflawed character and he does not allow it to be treated like sewage. He is zealous about it. And as a people, we need to begin to understand that he expects us to be zealous about his splendor. We see the jealousy of God. Uh, God's, we, we see this jealousy in John chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, where Jesus enters the temple and he begins to flip tables over and then he begins to drive out the money changers with a whip. And the disciples who were watching were later reminded of a scripture in Psalm 69, which said, the zeal of his house has consumed me. 
This is something that the Holy Spirit should cause to break upon our lives. Because you'll be surprised at how different life is when zeal falls on a people. Throughout the Old Testament, zeal caused people to do things that had them enter Hebrews chapter 11. In the New Testament, zeal exists because the Holy Spirit exists, not outside but inside, and just needs to be stirred up. And you'll be surprised if you work at, on this when you go home, that, oh God, stir up, oh God, stir up that zeal that is present in me by your spirit. You'll be surprised at the things that you will reach out for while being faithful over the things that are in your hand. This is not a message trying to explain Zechariah 8.1.2. This is a message trying to show us what God wants of us. I pray God that the zeal that you feel stirring in your heart as I speak will not go dormant because of the cares that choke out what we hear for two hours on a Sunday. Take guys like Phinehas, Numbers 25, 6 to 9. What did he do? He saw a man called Zimri bring a woman called Cosby into the camp. She was a Midianite and while people were worshipping God, he brings her in and scripture insinuates that he was caressing her. And what does Phinehas do? He takes a javelin and he thrusts it right through Zimri and Cosby and the plague that begins to hit the camp stops and God says of Phineas, this man is possessed with the zeal of God. Zeal has consumed him and this man will always have a part in the priesthood. What do you think happens to David? He's brought cheese and honey and cranberry, perhaps it was Thanksgiving, to, to the front lines. And he sees this Philistine giant marching up and down. And you know what David begins to say? Why is it that there is nobody here who is beginning to step out 